as you see on the screen, Isaiah chapter 40, coming from this Hebrew translation by Alec Matir. God comforts his people. Console me to Jerusalem. Console my people, your God keeps saying. Speak lovingly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her time of duress has been fulfilled, that the punishment of her iniquity has been accepted, that she has received from Yahweh's hand the exact payment for all her sins. A voice. Someone is calling out. In the desert, clear a road for Yahweh. Make straight through the open plain a highway for our God. Every valley must be raised, and every mountain and hill lowered, and the rough ground must become flat, and the mountain chain a pass. And the glory of Yahweh will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For it is Yahweh's mouth that is spoken. A voice. Someone is saying, call out. And someone is saying, what am I to call out? All flesh is grass, and all its reliability like a flower of the field. Grass withers, flower wilts, for Yahweh's spirit has breathed on it. Our surely people are grass. For grass withers, flower wilts, and the word of our God rises up forever. To a lofty mountain, up with you, Zion, bearer of good news. With strength, raise your voice, Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Raise your voice, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, as a strong one, the sovereign Yahweh will come, his arm ruling for him. Behold, the wage he has earned is with him, and his work is in front of him. Like a shepherd who shepherds his flock, in his arms he gathers the lambs, and in his bosom carries them. Those with young he guides along. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that through your word you bring us closer to yourself. Help us to understand more of you and more of how we should live our lives and how we can please you. We ask now, Lord, that you would open some this chapter to each one of us in an individual way, that it might mean something to us and that it might really change us in ways that you would wish. We ask you, Lord, to speak now. May your Holy Spirit lead each one of us into all the truth you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's not a big crowd tonight, which might be because I pushed a bit hard this morning by saying something about it, or it may just be it's half term. Um, but I think for each one of us, there is something special which the Lord will want to say tonight. I don't want to repeat what Ian did last week. He did a masterful overview 
not only of his chunk up to chapter 39 of Isaiah, but really of where we've got to from now. So if you want to get the total structure, go back to the, the talk which should be on the, the church website. What I'm going to do tonight is part one, first 11 verses. A bit later, we'll have part two read by David, and then I'll do a little bit on part two. All I'm aiming to do is to let those wonderful words speak for themselves and to pull out some of the deeper meanings that come through in this particular translation. I did actually pinch this uh, chapter from my good friend David, partly because we're away next weekend, but I'm grateful to David, and uh, he's got a good chapter of, or three or four or five next time. So uh, let's, let's get on with it. First 11 verses. Or maybe not. No, I'm going to give you a bit of background. Last week, where did we leave it? We left it with um, King Hezekiah of Judah, who was pretty good in some ways, but a bit fallible and a bit careless, trying to make treaties with Egypt and things which were a bit dodgy. And he was granted, having annoyed the Lord, 15 years extra life. And a little bit like the sort of Munich appeasement thing in the 1930s, he seemed quite happy that he was going to get the extra 15 years. But at the end uh, of chapter 39, we are left in a position where the people of Judah have been told they're going to be taken captive. And they were. Yeah, Hezekiah didn't seem too bothered for his people. He was just happy to get his uh, extra time on earth. So it's gloomy at the end of chapter 39. What next? And what did come next was uh, the defeat and exile of much of Judah in Babylon. Absolute disaster for the nation. And yet, chapter 40 comes in to this situation. One of the interesting things and the problematic things here is that the actual um, Babylonian two or three is probably about 150 years after Isaiah spoke. So some people thought there must be two or three Isaiahs, Isaiah of Jerusalem and so on. I don't want to get into that tonight because actually there's huge continuity as well. And it could be that Isaiah is absolutely seeing the detail of what's to come. So, Isaiah 40. Um, we'll have it up on the screen. Thank you, Rob, as we go through. This chapter is a great big gear change from what we've had. It's, it's after years and years of chaos and terror and kings who are not quite doing their stuff. It's all a mess. It's a bit like our world now, when you think of it. Think of leaders around the world. Think of wars and everything. It wasn't exactly great. And that's partly why this chapter is so great, because it shows what God thinks about all this. What he's doing here, the prophet Isaiah, inspired by God, is giving the people hope. He's stirring them up, encouraging them, giving them a vision of how their life as a restored nation will be. In other words, they're probably just coming towards the end of their uh, Babylonian exile as slaves and going to be allowed back into Judah and to get things going again as God's chosen people. So, Isaiah 1 to 39, largely about God's judgment. Chapter 40, as a sort of bridging gear change chapter, right up to the end of Isaiah, chapter 66, is all about God's love, his comforting of his people, 
and his people's new future with him. This is all about what he really wants. And it does apply to us too. I'm sure that Mike Prosser, for one, but I'm sure there's one or two other cultured people here tonight, will know that the first words of this section where Alec Matthias got console, console, in the authorised version talks about comfort ye, comfort ye my people, uh, which comes early in Handel's Messiah. I think it was comforty, which shows how cultured I always was. Um, we're going to do a bit of definition of this comfort, console thing in a few minutes. But just to set that up, uh, not to push you in any one direction, but I'm just going to give you a, a quote or two to show how particularly loved this chapter has been over the years. Uh, an ex-vice principal of Trinity College, Bristol, Alec Matia was principal, but this chap was vice principal. He was also a curate when I uh, was at school, so I actually heard him speak then. It's called Howard Pescott. This is what he says about Isaiah 40 onwards. Most the whole mountain range of the Bible, some of the highest and most wonderful peaks are to be found in these chapters. This particular uh, chapter has been described as possibly the most sophisticated Hebrew in the entire Old Testament. So it's kind of lyrical, it's poetic, especially uh, the second section. It's really, really deep stuff. But it's actually quite easy to understand the essence of it of what God is saying to his people through the prophet Isaiah it's also been said that chapter 40 onwards are more than just a completion of the prophecies of Isaiah and of God's will for the people they're a solution so chapters 1 to 39 if it had ended there we'd have just ended up with unresolved discord disaster they hadn't listened to the prophet properly. The kings had got it wrong and the people were in a mess without hope. It's chapters 40 to 66 which really give us the full picture. Now, towards the end of the captivity, as this prophecy comes through, we've got liberation in the air. There's, there's real sort of massive growing shoots of hope. And some of them would have definitely come from those who heard Isaiah uh, pronouncing these words so, so they're words of comfort consolation and they're focused on the exiles those who've been away from their home and on Yahweh's God's wish to bless them they're also words it's quite clear in this passage for the whole of Israel the northern kingdom too which was similarly in a mess and for the whole world typical Isaiah it's got a global reach and they are words for us. They're absolutely important words for the church. And we'll see some of those New Testament links a little bit later. Right then, in Isaiah 39, verses 6 and 7, we have dire words of judgment. You know, the kingdom is going to be in dead trouble. It's going to be taken captive. Dreadful. And that is what these words are now speaking to, that that awful punishment that dreadful time is now coming to an end so whether you use the word comfort as in the authorized version or console as we have in this translation let's just see what those words actually mean and what this implies here generally comfort is described in the dictionary as a state of physical ease being relaxed no problems you know sort of really laid back or the easing of a people's feelings of grief or distress 
which is slightly deeper than just being maybe exceptionally relaxed, feel better. Consolation is making someone who is sad or disappointed feel better by showing sympathy or empathy. Now, what's going on here is much deeper than that. It's not comfort about coziness, and it's not consolation in sort of, ah, it'll get better, don't worry, no sort of fond hopes. This is God wanting to bring comfort and hope and encouragement and strength to his people, which they desperately need. Here, he's about building resilience in his people. It's not about soothing them and making them comfortable in the wrong kind of way. And I think sometimes that's what we can get wrong at church. We emphasize perhaps the, the gentleness stuff, which you know we all like to soak up. But sometimes in order to please the Lord and have that peace with him, he needs to challenge us and put us right. So um, what's lovely with this early on is that we hear about salvation and we hear about God speaking lovingly to Jerusalem Apparently, what the meaning here is a bit like speak to the heart. It's a bit like, you know, um, somebody who's fallen in love with somebody trying to really speak lovingly to their heart, to really share that love. There's a wooing kind of aspect to this. This is the way Gosler feels about his people. Speak lovingly, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Call out to her. And then, of course, in verse 2, we've actually got this... Um, Exact payment for her sins have been dealt with by the Lord. Yahweh is dealing with all that. So that's another lovely promise for his people. I'm now going to chunk things up and just very quickly work through the rest of these first 11 verses. Verses 3 to 5, we have the first voice speaking these words, somebody calling out. It's been called the herald's call, but that's probably an old-fashioned word, somebody who pronounced uh, news. But it's all about Yahweh coming. And in his glory, um, his truth will be known, and he will speak to everyone from every generation. Obviously, John the Baptist fulfilled this. He was the voice who prepared a way for the coming of Jesus. And like John, I think... Our role, the church's role, is still to prepare the way for Jesus so that people's lives can be open to receive the good news and to be transformed. And perhaps it's people we already know, perhaps it's not. But like John, I think we're here all to prepare the Lord's way, even when it looks as if people don't want to hear. If we don't tell them, if we don't share, if we don't show the light of Jesus, who is the second voice, verses 6 to 8, another voice. This has been called the preacher's word. This sums up how transient we are. We aren't around for very long. It's all in God's hand. It's all creation. And it talks about the absolute permanence of God's word. Verse 8. The word of our God rises up forever. It's, it's the meaning is here of God's word or stands up and is counted. It's really, really powerful here. And that's true to the teaching of the New Testament, that this scripture's truth is powerful and will last forever. And it's a guide for all of us. 
throughout all ages. And the Apostle Peter noticed this bit. There are loads of links between Isaiah and the New Testament, including Jesus, obviously. He used Isaiah a lot. This bit from uh, Peter, and 1 Peter 1 verse 25, links to these verses 6 to 8. He said this, very simply, and this is the word preached to you. He's referring back to Isaiah's prophetic words. This is the word that was preached to you. And of course, that good news, that gospel is still as powerful today. That word of God's love for us and his wish to give us his salvation. In 1 Peter, this idea of the word um, being what was preached to them, linking into Isaiah. Derek Kidner, who was another great commentator, did a lovely commentary on the Psalms. He said this, that the 1 Peter section uh, means this. The word in its final form, final form as gospel, is no longer the mere constant, sorry, let's get this right, is no longer the mere contrast to our transience, which is in the early verses here, but the cure of it. His word is everlasting. We're quite transient. We come and we go. His word is there forever. And it's the word that leads us into eternal life through Jesus. Verses 9 to 11, and then we're stopping, we're having a pause. These are lovely verses. We've heard the word behold before. Verse 10. It's used twice in 10. It's also used once in verse 9. What does it mean? Apparently, behold is a sort of, hang on, concentrate, focus. It's take a look, perceive through sight, to gaze upon something or someone very special. Behold, you know, beautiful sunset. Behold, the Lord is coming with his mighty arm. That's the kind of meaning. It's a wow word. It's all about seeing fully someone or something that is amazing, impressive, just beyond what we might expect. Something to marvel at. So behold... Here, we are being asked, the people were being asked, to look at Yahweh, God by name. And he's going to come in power. That's what this is saying. And even more lovely, and I think reassuring for us, for those of us who need any kind of comfort about, have I let the, the Lord down so badly that I'm in dead trouble? I can't be forgiven for this, surely, or, you know, my life's just a mess. What, what can be done? Look at what verse 11 says that God is like. This all-powerful God, creator of the universe, is like a loving shepherd who will come to the work he has accomplished. Work That work is us, those who belong to him. That's his ultimate work beyond even his creation, those who are in fellowship with him. And just very quickly as an afterthought to round this off, because there's a lot in the New Testament about lambs, Let's just go through a few characters in the, the Bible who were shepherds. Abram, Sarah mentioned it this morning. Abel, sorry, Abram was the faithful shepherd. Abel was the sacrifice shepherd. Jacob was the working shepherd. Joseph was the persecuted and exalted shepherd. 
Moses was the itinerant and obedient shepherd. David was the shepherd king. But of course, Jesus was the good shepherd and the chief shepherd. He was the absolute ideal. But this whole imagery of tending for a helpless flock and a young flock at that, an immature uh, flock with lambs to the fore, it's all the way through scripture. It's all the way through. And it's giving the essence of God's love for us to care. It's clinging to a tiny little helpless lamb and making sure it's safe. That is the imagery here. That's the God we have. And just to pull out a quote from Alec Matia on this particular verse. We feel most of the lamb, the warmth of his shepherding arms around us and know for sure that we are the lambs of his flock. In coming to Jesus, in being saved, we have that certainty. We feel most gently the warmth of his shepherding, his shepherding arms around us, and know for sure that we are the lambs of his flock. The second half is not a half. It's about a third of that. But uh, we're coming to the longer section shortly. Let's um, prepare ourselves for another song.